Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 97. Before we start, I'd like to thank the following people for following the show on Twitter. Jeremy Conroy, Larry Rhodes, founder of the Atheist Society of Knoxville, Mark Plaid, I'd also like to thank Mark for liking the show's Facebook page, Joshua Kelly, All the Atheists, Carly, Greg Sackett, Facts Not Faith, I like that, that's my motto, Facts Not Faith, all right, Uh, Keith, Gene Mill, Heathen Heather, with a cool Kiwi bird profile pic. All right. Canadian Atheist, Joy Richards, Godless G, Synanon, Aiden Clark, and Erno Mattia. Phew. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Now on with the show. First up, I'd like to make a correction. In the recent episode where I gave my thoughts on the Bill Nye-Ken Ham debate, I accidentally mischaracterized a transitional fossil by the name of Tiktaalik. I wrongly referred to it as being a transitional fossil linking amphibians and reptiles. I then published a correction on Twitter saying that he was a link between fish and lizards, which is also kind of wrong. Technically, Tiktaalik is a kind of lobed fish from the late Devonian period that's thought to represent the transition between fish and amphibians. Amphibians and reptiles are, of course, closely related, but amphibians lay their eggs in the water while reptiles usually lay their eggs on the land, and their eggs have an extra hard protective membrane. The reason I mentioned Tiktaalik is because Bill Nye had used him as an example of the predictive ability of solid mainstream science. He talked about how people noticed that there were things like the still extant lungfish, a kind of strange fish that's capable of walking on land, and then there's amphibians, like salamanders and frogs. Scientists wondered if there might be something in between that fills the gap, and then they discovered Tiktaalik fossils in Canada around 2004, I believe. And Tiktaalik has these four fins that are also like rudimentary tetrapod limbs. It has a flat, almost crocodilian head. Um, But Bill Nye's point was that real science can make a prediction or put forth a supposition based on existing data and then often end up being proven right. Another example he gave was that If the theory of the Big Bang is true, then there should be some kind of trace evidence. And of course, eventually, Penzias and Wilson ended up accidentally discovering that primordial static or hiss that is essentially a persisting echo of the Big Bang. So I think Bill Nye's larger point was that real science has the ability to make logical predictions and be proven right, while Ken Ham's strange brand of theology-based science does not. But I can already imagine Ken Ham falling back on his BS distinction between observational and what he calls historical science to refute Bill Nye's point. But obviously this is an odious distinction. Mainstream science doesn't recognize Ham's division between observational and historical science. That's just his weak attempt, in my opinion, to be able to have his cake and eat it, too. He can say modern science, which gives us things like iPhones, medicines, and satellite technology, is observational science. Well, anything regarding the distant past is a matter of historical science, which, according to him, is best understood by using the Bible. Uh, Strange indeed. 
And by the way, while we're on the subject, I recently started rereading both the Book of Genesis and the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh in order to get reacquainted firsthand with the contradictions in Genesis and the similarities it bears to the older Epic of Gilgamesh. And I have to say, the idea of basing science on the Book of Genesis, if you don't already know, bad idea. As Cenk Uger from the Young Turks would say, bad idea genes. Okay, on to the next topic. So I recently watched this HBO documentary that came out recently called Questioning Darwin. And as I was telling friend of the show and listener John Haas, I actually think it was an all-around fair documentary. John asked me if I thought it was pro-Darwin, pro-creationism, or neutral. I told him I thought it was probably neutral, but maybe luckily for us, tended to lean a bit towards Darwin. The way it's set up is that they have interviews with both creationists and mainstream scientists, and in between they have these kind of tasteful and somewhat sympathetic reenactments of moments from Darwin's life. It's kind of scary though, right out the gate it starts with a moment of religion in the classroom, and it makes you wonder what you're in for, or if it's going to be biased in favor of religion. It starts off with this woman teaching a bunch of small kids, maybe kindergarten or elementary school age. They're all sitting cross-legged on the floor, and she's getting them to regurgitate things back to her about the Garden of Eden, etc. And even though it's a very short clip, I remember for the first time in a while feeling really indignant, almost, um, I know this is going to sound over the top, but almost physically ill, like there was... I felt so indignant there was like a, a knot in my stomach. I was surprised by the effect it had on me, but I think it was something about the idea of these innocent kids being indoctrinated at such an early age, being conditioned to embrace what I see as myth, as fact, at such an impressionable age by this deluded adult. In a way, it makes me see the adult as selfish and weak. Uh, that's probably pretty strong, but... If I can elaborate, you know, if you need to believe in this stuff to make yourself feel better, that's one thing. But why not just teach the kids the facts and let their sense of spirituality or lack thereof develop naturally? Some people might argue that it could be damaging to not teach the kids some sort of moral code or spiritual belief system. But I would argue that you don't need religion to teach morality and compassion. And furthermore, what's really damaging, at least from my personal experience, is being taught that all these myths, parables, miracle stories, etc. are real, and then reaching an age where you can really think for yourself and realizing that this whole religious worldview you've been indoctrinated into may simply be just another mythology. Now, that could be psychologically damaging. Uh, and there's a sense of loss or betrayal, I think, that accompanies such realizations. I don't mind the idea of when kids are older, teaching them mythology, comparative religion. I personally think those things are really stimulating, and there are some of my passions. And at least then there's a sense of freedom, and if something resonates with the kid, they can decide their own path. Maybe they're drawn to the compassion of Jainism or Buddhism or um, whatever, you get my point. And coincidentally, or somewhat coincidentally, they actually interviewed Ken Ham, uh, for the documentary, that is, and he kind of makes an ass of himself. The documentary had been discussing how Darwin started off religious and that he even wanted to be a clergyman or a, a country uh, parson, I think, or something like that. 
he was known to almost preach to the crew of the Beagle, or at least I think it was um, during his time on the Beagle. But they recounted how he had been so kind of sanctimonious and religious towards the crew that they kind of made fun of him for it. But his faith had been eroded by his study of the natural world. He couldn't reconcile all the suffering he witnessed in nature with the existence of a benevolent God. And when they ask Ken Ham about this, he responds that if Darwin had had better religious instruction, he would have been taught that suffering is the result of original sin. Um, I'm paraphrasing Ken Ham there, but that's pretty much what he said. But the documentary kind of proves Ken Ham wrong, if not directly, by explaining that Darwin had long been educated by members of the clergy. You don't think he was aware of the doctrine of original sin? I'm not exactly sure what the Church of England's stance on original sin was at the time, but I'm sure Darwin was probably made aware of the concept. This was a fairly religious young man, uh, with a religious education. And speaking of original sin, as I've said numerous times, it's a doctrine that I find vulgar and unjust, punishing all of mankind for the transgression of two individuals. Good thing from my point of view, at least, that it's merely a myth. There was some other weird stuff with Ken Ham in that documentary. He has different themed rooms in his creationist museum, and one was called something like the Cave of Sorrows or the Cavern of Sorrows or something like that. And it was this big, high ceiling room uh, with what appeared to be grimy looking concrete or cement walls. And images were being projected onto the walls, disturbing stuff like footage of marching Nazis, starving children, etc. It was supposed to teach how suffering is the result of original sin. It reminded me of something out of A Clockwork Orange or the old Welcome to the Jungle video, which borrows from A Clockwork Orange, where someone is force-fed images. Um, once again, it was another instance that smacked to me of religious indoctrination. While we're on the topic of Darwin, there was a couple of quotes used in the documentary that I found really interesting, and I kind of hunted them down, and um, I'd like to read them now. Both of them touch on Darwin's views on religion. Here's the first one. But I was very unwilling to give up my belief. I feel sure of this, for I can well remember often and often inventing daydreams of old letters between distinguished Romans and manuscripts being discovered at Pompeii or elsewhere, which confirmed in the most striking manner all that was written in the Gospels. But I found it more and more difficult, with free scope given to my imagination, to invent evidence which would suffice to convince me. Thus disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress, and have never since doubted even for a single second that my conclusion was correct. I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. And now here's the second one. Although I did not think much about the existence of a personal God until a considerably later period of my life, I will here give the vague conclusions to which I have been driven. 
The old argument of design and nature as given by Paley, which formerly seemed to me so conclusive, fails now that the law of natural selection has been discovered. We can no longer argue that, for instance, the beautiful hinge of a bivalve shell must have been made by an intelligent being, like the hinge of a door by man. There seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows. Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws, but I have discussed this subject at the end of my book on the variation of domesticated animals and plants, and the argument there given has never, as far as I can see, been answered. With respect to the theological view of the question, this is always painful to me. I am bewildered. I had no intention to write atheistically, but I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do, and as I should wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. Not believing this, I see no necessity in the belief that the eye was expressly designed. On the other hand, I cannot anyhow be contented to view this wonderful universe, and especially the nature of man, and to conclude that everything is a result of brute force. I am inclined to look at everything as resulting from design laws, with the details, whether good or bad, left to the working out of what we may call chance. Not that this notion at all satisfies me. I feel most deeply that the whole subject is too profound for the human intellect. A dog might as well speculate on the mind of Newton. Let each man hope and believe what he can. Certainly I agree with you that my views are not at all necessarily atheistical. So there you have it. And what I think might surprise some people is that this kind of something for people on both sides of the argument there. On the one hand, Darwin does sound somewhat like an atheist when he denounces Christianity and he rejects the idea of basically intelligent design. But at the same time, for people on the other side of the argument, he doesn't completely write off the idea of God or some kind of first cause or prime mover. And to me, it seems like Darwin was real. And this is what's so human, I think, about those quotes and compelling is that you can almost feel this is someone who really wrestles with the big questions, whether or not there's a God. Uh, the problem of what's known in theological parlance as theodicy, how to try to reconcile the supposed existence of a good God with the existence of suffering. And one thing that really makes me feel a connection with Darwin is at the beginning of the first quote, where he's talking about how he really wanted to believe, and he would even daydream about someone finding some ancient piece of correspondence or something like that, which would validate the claims of the Gospels or the truth of Christianity. And it reminds me of when I was younger and I considered myself merely agnostic. And I would watch documentaries on things like the Shroud of Turin. And even though my reason had eroded my faith, I would still find myself hoping against hope that by the end of the show, they would prove the uh, shroud to be real, or they would prove the um, 
spear of destiny or whatever it was to be real, that they would somehow validate the extraordinary claims of Christianity. I was considering doing some news stories, but I kind of like the mood I've created here. So this seems like a good place to end. So I think I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, you can like the show on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the Weekend Out YouTube channel. You can rate the show or subscribe through iTunes. Uh, You can check out the official Weekend Out Podbean page and check out some of the archives there. And if you're feeling generous, you can contribute to the show's upkeep by um, making a donation through the PayPal widget on the official Podbean page. Ah, and almost forgot. And you can also listen to the show on Stitcher now. So I think that just about covers it. So, all right. So once again, this has been The Week in Doubt. And thank you as always. <laughs> <laughs>